This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 79 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and today it is an incredible privilege to welcome as my guest a woman whom most people, including me, regard as the greatest film actress of all time, Meryl Streep. The 67-year-old has set the bar for nearly 40 years, giving performances for the ages in The Deer Hunter, Kramer vs. Kramer, The French Lieutenant's Woman, Sophie's Choice, Silkwood, Out of Africa, Ironweed, A Cry in the Dark, Postcards from the Edge, The Bridges of Madison County, Adaptation, The Hours, The Devil Wears Prada, Doubt, Julie and Julia, and The Iron Lady. And that's not even mentioning the great work that she's done on the small screen in projects like Holocaust and Angels in America and on the stage. Her latest great performance comes in Florence Foster Jenkins, a movie which hits theaters on Friday. Under the direction of Stephen Frears and opposite Hugh Grant, she plays the title character, a rich New York socialite who loved to sing opera, but unbeknownst to her had a painfully awful voice. In the hands of almost any other actress, this character would have been played one-dimensionally and proved grating. But in the hands of Meryl Streep, humor and heart and humanity always shine through, and this film is no exception. Thanks to a series of advanced screenings for press and tastemakers, Streep's performance is already generating the sort of buzz that suggests it could bring her a record-extending 20th acting Oscar nomination. For the record, three of her previous nominated performances, those in Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The Iron Lady, resulted in Oscar wins, leaving her only one win behind Katharine Hepburn for the all-time record. Over the course of our conversation, Shreep and I talk about her influences and inspirations and insecurities, her process of picking parts and learning accents and creating characters, her social and political activism, particularly in support of women's causes, her unprecedented success for an actress over 60, her thoughts about awards, and what it's like for a performer who is still very much in the game when everyone around you says you're the best. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. To begin with, we always ask, you know, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? (gasps) Really? (laughs) That's so nice. I was born in New Jersey My mother said I was the longest birth on record at Overlook Hospital. She was in labor for 72 hours. How much information do you want? (laughs) Well, so that's where, but uh, what what were your parents' professions? My father worked at Merck and was their personnel manager when it was called Merck Sharp and Dome International. And he was on 
actually setting up their workforce in Cuba and was on the last plane out, wow. escorted by a man holding a rifle oh to his head. God. Oh, my God. <laughs> and my mom was a child of the Depression. Her parents lost all their money. They had a, a very nice life. Two of her brothers went to Princeton. Her sister went to Vassar, and another sister was the first woman to graduate in engineering from Rutgers. But my mother never went to college because she was hit yeah. by the Depression. So she studied at the Art Students League a little bit and was a commercial artist in a little studio at the back of the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess everyone, to some extent, acts in their life. And for you, it seems like, from what I've read, the the first real role was who you wanted to be in high school as you were going through those kind of tough years for, for a lot of people. Is that fair to say? Look at the selfie generation. I think all kids are sort of, there's a moment where you discover the mirror, I think, you know, and now it's a phone. And so you kind of start to decide who you are based on what you see in there. What do other people think of me? And it's an unusual child that is fully formed at four and doesn't waver right. <laughs> until they're 21. So, yeah, I, I think I, in high school, tried to be pretty popular, <laughs> a cheerleader and all those things, right. because that was what was valued at the time I grew up. And then going off to Vassar, where it was all women, were you able to be more yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. I always think of it as when my brain woke up. <laughs> I made lasting friendships there, and I was there for two years when it was all women, and two years when they let them in. How did that change things? <laughs> it changed everything within one year. The head of the student government, the head of the um, literary magazine, the head of the Students' Alliance, the political, they were all men. It was weird. It, it's righted itself fairly quickly, but initially, at that time, everybody was comfortable, more comfortable, with men being leaders. And then we sort of pushed them out again. <laughs> <laughs> so I've read something that may be BS, like a lot of things on the internet, but maybe not. Is it true that after finishing at Vassar, after getting your degree, you were actually planning to go to law school? rather than drama school? Did something happen that changed that? It was while I was at drama school that I thought maybe I should go to law school because I, I, I fell in love, in love with a book, Jonathan Schell's uh, Fate of the Earth. And I was very influenced by environmental concerns and thought being an actor at that time felt like an indulgence or a vanity project that I was going into debt to be. And maybe I, if I were going to go into debt, it, <laughs> it should be in the service of something more meaningful and uh, more measurable. My contribution would, would be something mm -hmm. you could see instead of what I was aiming for, which was a life in the theater. Mm -hmm. Because in that, at that time, I, I didn't consider myself anybody that could be in the movies. So Jane was in Barbarella. You know, those were the movie stars. Catherine Deneuve, great beauties. You didn't see yourself no, in that way? No, no. And I saw myself, and I still see myself as a character actor, as a person who fits what I know mm -hmm. into the skin of someone who doesn't look like me, necessarily. 
thus hasn't been raised like I was. So as you embarked on this career where film was a possibility, I've read, just coming back to the role of appearance and looks and things in the movies, how that is, is such a big part of it for a lot of people. You had sort of an interesting interaction when you went out for King Kong, right? Where this was kind of an, an eye-opener from what I read about how you are going to come up against some BS when it comes to people's physical demands for, for work. Yeah, but I've, I've sort of told that story enough times that <laughs> it's besmirched poor Dino De Laurentiis, <laughs> and uh, he's not here to defend himself. But yes, I had a, a meeting where his son actually had seen me in a play and brought, brought me to his father for that meeting at the top of, I think it was the Gulf and Western Building or something, <laughs> very important office. And he spoke to his son in Italian and say, you know, he says, like, perché mi, mi che brutta? You know, why do you bring me this, this ugly thing? And I responded, because I had two years of Italian, professor. <laughs> and I responded to him and said, I'm sorry, I disappoint you. Me dispiace molto. But, uh, but did that know. also, I mean, on the one hand, it's, you, you kind of won that exchange. But I on didn't the other, win it. I lost the job. <laughs> lost the job. And I should have because, you know, yeah, I should have. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay, so as it played out, the, the big break, I think what you would probably regard as the deer hunter. I mean, I know you did, Julia, yeah. before. So prior to that, when you were now on people's radar as a film actress, who were the people who shaped you the most as you were forming as an actress? I've read you talk about everyone from your grandmother to Bobby Lewis at Yale and Errol Hill at Dartmouth. And then yeah. there was certainly, you Joe know, Pap. John Cazale and George, Joe Papp and all these people. So who, in your view, helped to form you the most? When I was in school at Yale, in, in terms of film, I remember seeing Cries and Whispers, uh, seeing Lee Volman and Harriet Anderson, I think it was, and that was amazing. I remember taking a train down and seeing Liza Minnelli in a show called Live, <laughs> I think, <laughs> at the Winter Palace, yeah. and it was the exact opposite of everything we were learning at at school, you know, which was getting to the truth of a moment and exploiting all choices and things like that. But the, the performance aspect of what Liza taught me was huge. It was a communication that went right out to the, the cheapest seats, which is where I was sitting. <laughs> it was a, an energy and a desire to get to everybody, just worm into everybody's heart. And it was... That was an enormous influence. I've had many. Mm -hmm. um, I saw Irene Worth on stage and Geraldine Page and Colleen Dewhurst on stage. And wow. those, those giants, uh, they weren't women who were preoccupied mostly with how they looked or were they appealing. They were being women. Mm -hmm. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So early in your career, certainly including Deer Hunter, but then obviously Kramer, Kramer, Sylvie's Choice, Out of Africa, the roles that people first really got to know you in, these were 
very serious parts, very dramatic films. Is that what you find yourself naturally drawn to, or were you yearning even then to be given the opportunity to do some of the more comedic kinds of things that you've done in more recent years up to and including Florence Foster Jenkins? Mm. Well, I mean, in three years at Yale, I think I did one play that didn't have a comic or an antic tilt to it. So even the serious plays, we did a production of Dostoevsky's The Possessed, but we were encouraged towards hyperbole. I mean, I, I will say that. And there was nothing sort of naturalistic. I was never in a naturalistic play, except maybe The Father mm-hmm. with Rip Torn. Yeah, I think I always wanted to be, ne- never to be limited in, in terms of my imagination. Mm-hmm. I, I thought of myself as anything. I, can, I never have to stop being a child. I never have to stop imagining what it's like to be somebody else. And that I have a restless imagination, and I do have a kind of relentlessness to my personality, I've been told. (laughs) (laughs) So I think I've found kind of the perfect job. But I've never had a production company or imagined the kind of part I wanted to play. I would really be completely dependent on what came to my door you know, what what the script was. And if it was a good script, I'd do it. Yeah. <laughs> so people always try to find common threads through the work, and mm-hmm. I think that that's usually a, a pointless exercise. But yeah, because it's serendipity. Yeah, yeah. But you have said if there was one thing, it might be that you tend to play characters that you feel a need to defend in a sense. Is that still the case? Well, that may be just a, a bent of mind, you know. That might, might be my just personal predilection <laughs> to feel that I'm misunderstood and I need to explain it. <laughs> you don't, you think you see me, right. you see long blonde hair. When you were asking the, that I, did I want to play things, uh, comedies, and mm-hmm. the thing that really first brought me to public notice was maybe The Deer Hunter and then Holocaust. Holocaust, yeah. Holocaust was incredibly influential. It's like had the impact of roots. There's a documentary that's just been made about its impact in Germany, which was immense. Mm. Yeah, because people didn't even use the word. They didn't even know. Yeah. That defined me, having long blonde hair and a sort of a serious long nose and a sort of a serious face. I didn't go back. That was how I was cast Mm -hmm. after that. That, Mm -hmm. That's the kind of script that came. Kramer versus Kramer and Sophie's Choice and all those things. They were serious parts. But I always thought I was sort of funny, even in the tragic things. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I know that everyone, the other thing that maybe gets a little grating is probably every interviewer always asks you about accents. And another thing in going back and reading a lot of your other interviews over the years, some of them going back 30 plus years, was that you sort of bristle at that because you see it as just part of the character in the same way that you'd have to do something else you know, the, uh, the costume or whatever, it's just an aspect. So can you talk about how you came to that understanding that it is that integral to the character? I mean, uh, one of these pieces that I'm referring to, you talked about Barbara Streisand being a, a lesson sort of in that, in the sense that how you, just even the breathing aspect of it. Sometimes I think we let ourselves be be typecast and you're just so as a young actor so happy for a job that you don't consciously 
try to undermine the thing that they clearly want you to be. But I'm adversarial <laughs> in my approach to, to that kind of thing. If somebody expects me to be sweet, I, I can't help but mine the venom in that character, <laughs> you know, that, uh, that's there. Because people are so complicated. People are so interesting. And there's always something that's hidden and something that's contradictory in, in, in a character. And that's what draws me. It feels like the truth. So I never wanted to be limited to just playing people from northern New Jersey or the tri-state area, you know. In, and that's what would happen if I just decided that I'd exploit my long blondedness. <laughs> but just to, to come back for one second, to the thing with, that I'm referring to about Barbara Streisand was that you were saying uh, as a kid you would just... It, it, you would literally, in the way people listen to records, they they just listening for the music. You were listening for the breaths and the pauses and the uh, emotion, just even in a song, right? And, yeah, and no, so I wasn't. It wasn't like a technical thing. I wanted to be her. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the best way to be somebody is, you know, Melania wants to be Michelle, <laughs> and so. Yes, you copy. Right. Of course, you copy. But that was applicable when you then later had to, when you did take on a project where you have to be Polish or whatever, you could apply that same kind of way of learning a song to learning an accent. Yes, I mean, it's just sort of, I'm not a really immediate quick quick study. I have a pretty good ear, but I'm not Tracy Ullman who can just <laughs> do you while right. you're talking to her. Right. I, I do have to, to study a certain amount. When I listen to the omnibus uh, programs about Isaac Dinesen when she made an appearance in Washington, that was very helpful uh-huh. to, to understand. Because how people speak is not just their accent. It's, it's how the accent halts or flows or you know, how their speech is um, enhanced by certain emphases, you know, and, and sort of all that stuff is, you try to drink it all in, and, and then you just forget it when you go to work. I don't right. even think about that stuff when I'm working, when I'm making a scene with somebody. Mm. I'm just listening to the other person. I'm not thinking, oh, is this vowel right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Pretty early in your career, people began referring to you as perhaps the greatest actress of your generation. Then that became perhaps the greatest living actress. Now it's the greatest actress, period. When you're still doing what you have... That it's God. That it's God. You've played God. (laughs) But when you're still doing it and you hear this and you know that people are thinking this, does it give you more confidence or does it It make you doubt yourself? Yeah? Is what it gives. Yeah. How can you not? I mean, it's just nauseating and and unhelpful in the deepest sense of what acting is. Acting is just this exchange unless you're alone in a room or you're Jeremy Irons in that thing where he played twins. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> his, wife, his, his wife said, he's never been happier with the other <laughs> performance. <laughs> but it's just something like, because you feel it, it can intimidate the people that you have to work with. It makes yeah. it harder. Yeah, yeah, it makes it harder. It's like this big thing that you have to deflate. But within the first day, I would say, when I completely, I can't remember what I'm supposed to say, <laughs> or match. I'm so bad at matching. I used to be really good at matching. Now it's just like, fuck it. <laughs> and uh, Jack Nicholson said to me, everything cuts, babe. So 
<laughs> After that, I thought, I don't have yeah, to match. Yeah, right. The other sort of semi-related thing is that as you became a more well-known person and face, how does that affect your ability to do your work as an actor? It seems to me like the thing that makes great actors great is being able to observe people behaving naturally. And when they're no longer behaving naturally around you, does it make your job harder? I have to say, since the advent of the cell phone camera and the selfies, who is really behaving naturally? <laughs> it's like no, no one. Right. Everybody's performing. Right. That was sort of the joy of, of doing Florence. It was in a time where people were not aware of their how they presented mm-hmm. completely. Mm-hmm. You know, they just, they weren't uh, so self-aware and self-conscious all the time. And on a deep level, they just lived. And that was appealing to me to sort of imagine that freedom of care from what it looked like. Because it's, it's gone, right? Yes, yeah. it kind of is. 40, as everybody says, I guess, is a very scary age for a lot of people in this business. And, and I guess justifiably so, because a lot of people that you came up with are, are not necessarily still doing it. And I wonder for you, what did you dread reaching that age? And when you did... Did things change? Because obviously you've come through it, but at that point when it was... It was a long time ago, and, and things have really changed. Look at television. I mean, it's a landscape of women, interesting women. Movies haven't caught up. Why is that, Scott? You tell me. Is it international market and all that stuff? Or well, there's what just is so it? many more outlets on TV, and people can go for what they want with less... There's less pressure for everything to be a hit. Yeah, I think it's distribution. I think that, you know, there's 10 buyers for North America, and yeah. they're not 10 women. So why have you been able to do something that virtually nobody had done before, which is that over the past decade, in the summers alone, you have been in The Devil Wears Prada, Mamma Mia, Julie and Julia, Hope Springs, The Giver, Ricky and the Flash, and now Florence Foster Jenkins. We'll see, obviously, you know, it seems like people are loving Florence Foster Jenkins, but for those others, these were movies that were not what you look at and say that's an obvious summer movie, Mm -hmm. you know, it's clear who's going to go to this, and yet all of them did very well. Now, up until you, people said you don't put out a movie with somebody in their late 50s, early 60s, now mid-60s, it's just not going to work. Why do you think it worked in these cases, and do you think it's a phenomenon that can apply beyond Meryl Streep. Of course you can. I mean, and that that audience that's, a lot of them are staying home, you know, because they've been shut out of the movie-going experience by a series of car crashes, explosions, and things that are just not ever going to speak to <laughs> what they want on a Thursday night. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I really, this is too big a question for me to solve, but certainly... Those films that you mention, each one was regarded by the powers that be, the mm-hmm. studios, as a one-off. That, well, that right. was an anomaly. Right. But then they kept happening, and suddenly it occurred to some people. And at that time, what's changed is in my lifetime is that there are more women executives. And it has to reach more critical mass, not just two or three in the room at the table of 12. Mm-hmm. Because they're always going to be under siege and trying to think like the enemy. But <laughs> if, you, if you get more of them, then it becomes representative of the population. If it's half and half, that voice will say, you know what, let's counter-program. Let's, let's give people 
not only what they want. They'll show you lots of data that says women pick what people are going to go mm-hmm. see at the movies. Yeah. And I say to them, that's like saying, I pick what we're going to have for dinner. That's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. But what I pick is based on what everybody wants right, in right, my right, family. Right. It's not what I want to see or <laughs> eat necessarily, but it's what everybody wants because women tend to think for the group. And it seems like the other thing is that they can only pick from the scripts that are available, which is why I know it's yeah. been important to you to you've you've started the Writers Lab, which yeah. I know they just announced you just announced your crop of this year's candidates, where it's female screenwriters, forty and older. Mm-hmm. Also, in Telluride last year, you were talking after screening of Suffragette, I think, about why it's important to you to just make sure that the lives of women of a certain age are actually told, because in society, even they are often, in a sense, invisible, which is a, that was a big part of why I think you were drawn to the Iron Lady as well, from what I remember. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. is that sort of a big mission of yours to to just, you know, make sure that stories outside of the target demos are are actually making it to the screen? I just think it's bad business. Not yeah. it, well, Why is one kind of money we're going to just throw it away and neglect it. Right. If it's there, if there's a pile to be had, why not get it? <laughs> I don't understand that. I think that that movies and movie-making decisions do also operate on a level of personal pride so that uh, maybe these so-called business decisions really have to do more with what he wants to associate himself with. Right. It seems like, you know, everybody, people sometimes knock the Oscars, but the one thing about the Oscar season and the whole Oscar process is that it seems to be the, an incentive to actually tell original creative stories when otherwise outside of the year it's all pretty formulaic. And so I just wonder for you as somebody who's got three of these and, you know, I was there the, the night you won for the Iron Lady and yeah. I was thinking... At this point, is, does this even mean anything to her? She's got a, a shelf of this, and it did seem to really mean something. It so did. I just wonder for you, yeah. yeah, why do you feel that these have helped you? Do you care about awards at this point? Well, I mean, Iron Lady, I think it made, I think it was it cost $11 million or something to make, and it made maybe 60 or uh, maybe more than that now around the world. And that was because of the Oscars. It, that really helped that film to be seen. Otherwise, who would want to go see a movie about <laughs> a woman with Alzheimer's late in her life after she's been prime minister? Right, Not right. while she's ordering <laughs> the ships around. But uh, so, and these stories are... They're interesting, yeah. and I, th- I think the problem is getting them out there. It's like the problem of there are so many good-minded people of good faith in the country, but if we can just get them to get out and register to vote right. and then to vote, <laughs> you know, right. it's uh, a problem of distribution. So that night in that acceptance speech you've told I I didn't realize something that you revealed in that speech which is that there is a thread that goes all the way from Sophie's Choice to Florence Foster Jenkins which you seem to feel has been very integral to your performances and that is Roy Helland who also won that night by the Mm -hmm. way so Mm -hmm. for people who don't know who that is or why he's been important 
you know, why you feel it's, it's helped to shape your performances. I wonder if you can share that. No, I'm not going to talk about Roy Helland. I mean, he'll, his head will grow even bigger than it already is. <laughs> oh, look, he's putting on yeah, lip balm as we speak. Yeah, I mean, this is my partner in crime and for hundreds of years. And he's, uh, he's an imaginative and skilled and uh, sort of an animating force in because he's interested in all aspects. He's got a big curiosity about the world and isn't afraid to try sort of the operatic gesture. And, and that's, I think the act of imagination is the thing that business is least, is least interested in. And yet, when you go out on a limb, it often is the thing, it's risk that pays you back, you know, and so, We've we've gone out and live on a lot of yeah, things, yeah, yeah. and uh, it's uh, it's paid us back. Yeah. Not enough. <laughs> but, uh, he can't well, hear me. Thank well, God. Well, the last question is this: you know, you've obviously accomplished so much in the profession of acting and won the respect of your peers, and you've now got children following in your footsteps into this profession. Mm-hmm. What is it that you know, many years from now, when we're all gone and people are studying this stuff, what would you like them to remember about Meryl Streep? What would you like them to say? Oh, my God. I don't know, but as we came in from the airport, Roy pointed out the Will Rogers Museum, which is, I guess, they're closing. And I thought, why? Because nobody remembers Will Rogers. (laughs) And there was, I mean, a more trenchant, integral part of his time there you can't imagine right someone without whom you know that whole period of history wouldn't have been leavened by his wit and charm and everything he's you know no nobody can <laughs> nobody cares so i'm pretty <laughs> i'm pretty uh, sanguine about that right. you can just live in your time and try to speak to it and wrestle with it and bring what you know to people and hope hope it matters at that time. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it.